0: Matthew chapter 5. One of the things that I read about this week that I just found interesting is that Americans are more concerned with pursuing happiness than they've ever been. People want to be happy. They work hard to try to make a living. They try to live according to their own set of morality. They try to get a good education. They try to find a good career. They want the right spouse. They want the right um, house to raise a family to raise kids in. It's built into the fabric of who we are to seek happiness, to look for happiness, to try to find happiness. In fact, it's built into the fabric of our nation, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal And that they're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are what? Life, liberty, and? Pursuit of happiness. The thing is, at some point in our lives, while we are pursuing happiness, we realize it is an elusive thing. Amen? It's not easy to grab a hold of. And even when we feel like we have it, it doesn't quite stay. You find the guy that you think is the guy, and then he finds somebody else. You get the job that was the job you always wanted. Man, if I could just work there. And you get there and you realize it's not all it was cracked up to be. That vacation spot you've been dreaming of. And you get there, and there are some problems. Problems. That doesn't stop the pursuit of it. What's interesting is, I mentioned this at the beginning, that Americans are pursuing happiness more than they ever have. I saw this statistic, it just blew me away. At the beginning of this century, so right around 2000, on average, about 50 books a year were written about happiness. Fifty. Once we hit around 2010 forward, somewhere between three and 4,000 books a year are written on happiness. Somebody writing in Psychology Today said, According to most measures as a nation, we have grown sadder and more anxious during the same years that these happiness movements have flourished. So we're writing about it more, we're seeking it more, we're going after it more, and we're finding it less. Isn't it true that when you watch, not just the news, you talk to friends, you look online at social media, people aren't as happy as they want to be, or it even feels like used to be. Yale University revealed recently that their most popular class in history is being taught right now. They made it available online for people to do. Upwards of 25% of the students at Yale take it. It's Psychology 157, Psychology and the Good Life, How to Live a Life That Will Make You Happy. With all this pursuing happiness, with all this reading about happiness, with all this studying about happiness, with all the talking about happiness, and we're less happy than we've been, it seems like we're missing something. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing exists. Now here's why I'm talking about happiness. Because we are starting a series that we're going to move through this summer and perhaps beyond through the Sermon on the Mount. Most consider the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, Jesus. And as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with a set of what have become the Beatitudes. And there are all kinds of cute ways to remember these are the attitudes to be. These are the things that should make us fulfilled. Fulfilled. But the word that he uses in each of the verses, the blessed are word, that word in the original Greek language can be translated in a multitude of ways. And if you look through Bible translations, you'll find all kinds of translations. Blessed, to be congratulated, to be honored, to be applauded. But the most basic definition and understanding of that word is the word happy. Happy is. Happy are. And when you read this, when you look at this, when you look at the Beatitudes, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what you discover is that what Jesus tells us will make us happy is countercultural and upside down for most of the values and the things we cherish as Americans living out an individualistic society trying to attain what we think will make us happy. And so last week we started to walk through this. He gathers them around and he goes up on the mountain and after he sat down his disciples came to him. That's verse 1. And he began them, teach them saying, and he gives four things we did last week, and it's progression, one upon the other. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heavens is theirs. He says, blessed are you when you realize the absolute poverty of your own soul, and that without God you are completely destitute, that you have no hope apart from God. Blessed are you. Happy are you then. See how counterproductive that seems? Happy are you when you realize how terrible the state you find yourself is is. Blessed are you. Happy are you. Blessed are you that are mourned, for they will be comforted. He says, once you understand the poverty of your soul, once you understand how destitute you are without God, then blessed are you when you mourn about it, when you weep about it, when you cry about it, when you cannot get over that reality. Happy are the meek. Blessed are the humble, the meek, for they will inherit The earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I mentioned this last week, the first four of these are almost like the, the first four of the Ten Commandments that focus directly on our relationship with God and our understanding of who He is in our lives. Then they build upon each other. When we realize the poverty of our spirit, we, we weep over that, we mourn over that, we become teachable by God, meek, allow Him to instruct us, allow Him to shape us, allow Him to form us. And then we hunger for the things of God, we long for the things of God, we seek the things of God. And then in verse 6, there's a transition, and it goes primarily from our relationship with God to our relationship with others. Now, that we'll talk about in just a moment, the second one we'll talk about today has a little bit of an understanding of a purity towards our devotion to God, but it's because of others that that devotion matters. Let me just tell you, my full intention today was to do the next four Beatitudes, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12, all the way down there. And I wrote out the notes, and I got ready to go, and I started reviewing it, and I realized that to do that justice, to do it what it ought to be done, I was going to speak for about an hour and 15 minutes. All right? (laughs) There's some parents with some preschoolers in here, right? And going, oh, no, 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 no. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do two of them today, okay? I don't want to shortchange the importance. I don't want to go start cutting out stuff because I think they're important. And I think this is the reaction of our relationship with God. This is how it plays out. And so we're just going to do two. We're just going to do verse 7 and verse 8 today. But they are powerful understandings of what it looks like to live a life that is blessed, that is good, that is happy. Verse 7 says this, Blessed, happy to be congratulated are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Now just to give you an understanding, that word there, merciful, the word in the original language literally means to give help to those that are wretched or to relieve the miserable. To help those in need. And what it means is to do something to help those in need. What we see from out scripture is that God is a merciful God. God is one. Now, there's a difference between grace and mercy, right? We've talked about this. Grace is when you receive what you do not deserve. So that is the good things in our lives, the gifts in our lives. When you get something good and you do not deserve it. Mercy is like the other side of the coin of that. It's the tails of the coin to the head of grace. Mercy is when you do not receive the punishment you do deserve. So grace is when I get something I don't deserve. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. It's when my debt is paid. It's when my sins are washed away. It's when someone overlooks a mistake I made. We know from Scripture that God is a merciful God, again and again looking over the sins of people. In fact, it tells us even in the New Testament that that part of the reason, the timing that Jesus came, it says when God no longer could look over the sins... Of the people. Jesus came to die on the cross. To make that payment for our sins. But God extended mercy. Can I tell you something? God is still extending mercy. Because right now God could come at any moment. And any moment He would come. He would be just and right in coming. But scripture says that He is patient with us as the church. That we might proclaim the good news of the gospel. So that people might be saved. In His mercy He is waiting so people can be saved. In His mercy He did not hold us accountable for our sins. And Scripture says, the Beatitudes say, happy are the people that follow the lead of God and are merciful for they will be shown mercy that we actively look for those in need and help. Another way to think about this, another way to kind of process this is, what is your first reaction in life? Is it judgment or mercy? Is it... They get what they deserve or how can I help them overcome it? Because the God we serve is judge. Yes, he is a judge. He is a righteous judge. But he leads with mercy and grace. And my concern is there are a whole lot of Christians that lead with judgment and mercy and grace trail behind. God is a God Now, let me just also say this real quickly, all right? Mercy, as it's described here, when it says, Blessed are the merciful, to be congratulated are the merciful, happy are the merciful. Just understand this. The word mercy there, merciful there, means compassion in action. It doesn't just mean that we feel bad for somebody. Man, I hate that for you. Man, that's tough. And while, yes, there is some room and space in counseling and discussion and friendship and relationship and Christianity for listening, we need to listen. But there's also space, once we've listened, once we understand, for action. Because without action, it's not mercy. I read an illustration this week. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's too good not to say it, all right? The story is of a 19th century preacher came across a friend whose horse had been unexpectedly killed. And there was a group of bystanders there and they were all expressing words of sympathy. We're so sorry. I cannot imagine. This is so terrible. This is so bad. The preacher stepped forward in the midst of that and said to the one that was most vocal in expressing sympathy, he said, I'm sorry, $50. How sorry are you? And then he took his hat out and passed it like, let's do something about our sorry, Right. In Scripture, one of the best places to understand the mercy of God as we ought to live it out is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We talked about this not real long ago. We talked about it when the Neighbor series, by the way, reading some of the things that I've seen online and following what's going on in our world, man, I feel like I almost just need to preach that Neighborhood series again. Especially the whole digital address thing. But you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Most of you have heard the story. Even if you don't grow up in church, people know the Good Samaritan, right? Guy's walking on a particularly treacherous road. He's taken, he's beaten, left for dead, literally. And Preacher gets out of service and walks over and sees him and steps on the other side and walks by. Music minister comes out, same thing, sees him, steps over on the other side. And then a Samaritan of all people, the people that the Jewish people look down upon the most, walks by, and instead of going to the other side of the room, he stops, and he kneels down, and he seals some wounds, and he takes the man to a hotel, and he gives the man everything he's got to pay for his stay, and says, if he owes more, when I come back, I will pay it. Now, the point of that story, by the way, was to get to the scribes and Pharisees who were asking God, how can we limit the people in our lives that we show mercy to? And God's point was that we don't ask the question, who can I limit my life of showing mercy to? The question we need to ask is, what would I want people to do for me? And how can I extend mercy to as many people as possible? And there are a few lessons that we can learn about giving mercy as described here in Blessed are the Merciful from that story of the Good Samaritan. And the first one of this is that mercy is not afraid to touch human suffering. But I'm just going to tell you, people are hurting. And it's evident in our society From the moment this COVID outbreak hit, suffering has risen to new levels. Unemployment is at highs that we couldn't imagine have seen six months ago. People are without jobs. They're not getting paid. They're worried about their own health. I mean, can you literally, can you imagine six months ago if I said, hey, listen... We're going to be in church service, but we're only going to be at a third full because we don't need to sit together. We can't hug each other. And uh, half of us are going to be wearing masks in the midst of the service. Can you imagine? Worried, scared, news every day. Listen, news came out this week. It doesn't spread like they thought it was. Asymptomatic don't spread the next day. Well, that's not really what we meant. Right? We don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I'm not a... What do they call the people that know what's going on? Well, they don't know what. I don't know that people know what's going on. But epitomo- epitom, whatever that is, right? Every day it's a new thing, and we're, we don't know what to do with that. Suicides are up. Drug overdoses are up. Calls to child abuse and domestic abuse hotlines are up. And that's not even to mention what has been sparked in our country again in the last few weeks. With the racial divide that is evident in our nation. People are hurting. And as believers, as Christians, if we are unwilling to actually physically touch and be a part of bringing healing to people's physical suffering we are not following the example that our God has given us. Mercy is not afraid to touch human suffering. Also, mercy is not afraid to cross ethnic, cultural, and religious barriers to help. that has been a good place for an amen. I know Alan gave me one. And maybe all you at home gave me one, but I only heard one in here. Mercy is not afraid to cross ethnic, cultural, and religious barriers to help. This is what the Good Samaritan is all about. A Samaritan literally crossed ethnic, cultural, religious barriers. I won't go into the full details of all that is there, but they practiced a different religion They had a different culture. They were from a different part of the world and they from a part of the world that Jews didn't go near because they didn't like how they worshiped and they thought that they had breeded, they had crossed with other cultures that was abhorrent to them. And so there was a racial component to it. And Jews were in the wrong for not wanting anything to do with it. And Jesus points that out on multiple occasions with a Samaritan woman at the well with the good Samaritan story where he reaches out to people that would not have been accepted by the religious establishment of their day. And if we're going to be the people that God has called us to be, we must be willing to reach across any... Because the reality is, in this world, there are two types of people. Those that have accepted the grace and mercy that is given to them by Jesus Christ, and those that need to. And that's it. That's it. Amen. Galatians says, right, that those of us that have accepted Christ have been brought into the family of Christ. We are Christ's family. And there is no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female at the foot of the cross. Nothing. And if you in your heart harbor any ill will towards a particular group of people because of their race, socioeconomic level religion then you are not in line with what God intends. Let me just tell you this, alright? That doesn't mean that if someone's of a different religion we go, well that's fine, you just believe whatever you want to. We pray like everything and speak to them the truth of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't make them less of a human being because of that. They are created in the image of God and they are worthy of as we are, of the mercy that we can extend to them. The story of the Good Samaritan lastly shows us that mercy will cost us. It literally costs this man in the parable everything he had to extend mercy. And it may cost you reputation, and it may cost you financially, and it may cost you sweat, and it may cost you tears, and it may cost you friends and family but showing mercy is what brings us to the place that scripture says we are blessed. What's the reward he says? Why are they blessed? Why are they happy? It says for they will be shown mercy. What does that mean? I think and this is this is I've researched there's lots of ideas out there. This is what I think scripture's teaching us here. Is that when we show mercy, we gain a bit of understanding into the mercy that God has shown us. It's not that we're going to receive it. That God's up there going, well, I'll show mercy today to that group. So you know what? I'm going to show some mercy to law. It's not like a ledger is being kept in heaven. By the way, if it were, his side of the ledger is considerably more than mine. Amen. The mercy He has shown me is going to outweigh the mercy I've shown anybody else every time. In fact, when I think about this, the way that I think about it is the parable of the unmerciful servant in reverse. You remember that parable, right? A guy gets forgiven, a huge debt he can never pay, walks out of there, scotch very happy, goes to a guy that owes him a little penance and puts him in jail because he wouldn't pay him back. The master that he owed millions of dollars to comes back and says, listen, that ain't how it operates. You should have shown mercy because of the mercy I showed you. Obviously the example there is that God has shown us mercy beyond what we could imagine. And we ought to show that to our fellow human beings. And when we do, the reverse of that is we understand a bit, a small bit. There's no way we can comprehend the vastness of the mercy that God has shown us. But when we show mercy, there is a glimmer of what it looks like. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Second and finally, I told you if I was preaching the whole thing, we'd be here for a while. Second and finally, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Question basically here is happy are the pure in heart. What does it mean, pure in heart? Well, first of all, pure means the purity in terms of morality. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. Purity here is on our focus, our devotion, our undivided heart. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, which is the basis most people think for Jesus to use, it says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in His holy place? He who has a clean hand and a pure heart. There's a song that we sing occasionally around here, and it is simply a cry out of that. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. It comes directly from Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Lord, we want to see you. We want to be a part of what you're doing. We want to be with you. Show us that. Clean us. Take care of us. Purity here means focus. It means absolute devotion. It means a life that has been cleaned by the Lord. Now, when he speaks to them and he said, Blessed are the pure, they would have agreed with that. But they would have immediately thought of external washing, external cleansing, the priest offering off, uh, sin offerings for them, them bringing things to the temple to make them physically clean, to make them spiritually clean on the outside. But when he says purity of heart. It takes it deeper. It takes it inside. It takes us to the heart of the emotions, the mind, the will, the feelings, the actions of where we are. Martin Lord Jones says that the way for us to understand this is to think blessed are the pure, not only on the surface, but in the center of their beings. At the source of every activity. Blessed are you when there is a purity in your motivation and your desires and your wants as you move towards the Lord. What is it directed toward? It's directed completely on the Lord and His will for your life. Blessed are you when you're passionately devoted to one thing and that is the Lord. People in Jesus' day would have been focused, as I said, on outside stuff. That's why He would talk to them and He would call out the Pharisees and say that you are like a cup, that you have washed the outside of completely, but the inside is filthy where you actually drink from. I still think back to the days when my kids were much younger. And we would get in the car on a particularly hot day and an aroma would immediately hit you. An unpleasant aroma would immediately hit you. When their milk container had rolled under the seat. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Sorry to bring up some bad memories here. And you would think, what is that? And you would pick up the cup and it would look perfectly fine on the outside. Amen? Maybe. But the moment you twisted, what awaited you inside could only be described as something coming from the very depths of hell. And I mean that literally. Amen? I mean, y'all, some of you acted like it, but y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The smell, the look, and your next question was salvageable? No. Trash? Yes. They got 40 of these at Walgreens. I'm going to get some at Walgreens, right? Jesus tells the Pharisees, you're like that milk cup. Man, you look good on the outside, but you stink inside. He also tells them a harsher reality. He calls them what? Whitewashed tombs. You're not just stinky on the inside. You're dead. What he's saying here is blessed are people that don't look good on the outside. That's not what it's all about. We're going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks when we talk about our prayer life and fasting life and what that looks like. He says, don't worry about what you look like on the outside. Worry about what's on the inside and what drives you. What's the motivation of your life? What is it that sends? What is it that focuses your life? Is it an absolute devotion to the person of God And His purpose and His plan. Blessed are you if that's the case. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they, it says, will see, experience, fellowship, understand God. So what does that mean for us? When we think about what it means to be merciful, what it means to be pure in heart, What does that look like? Well, it means that we are passionately seeking after the Lord and when we see people in need, we give tangible help. And the process to get there is simple. First of all, we be absolutely honest with God about our heart's condition. Can I just tell you something real quickly? God already knows the condition of your heart and so when you come to Him and confess things to Him, He is not going to be like, really? Don't let your pride get in the way. Honest with God about your heart's condition. Acknowledge that only God can make your heart pure. And then fill your life with the Word of God. Not the words of men about the words of God, although I think that, obviously, I'm a preacher, I think that's an important part of the process, but the actual Word of God. And then live a life dedicated to Him for the spread of His kingdom and the good of the people that He loves and created. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Over the last several weeks, many of us got to, in a way that we had not in a long time, slow down. Now some didn't, some kept working and had life going, but just in our family, lots of the things that we had, extra stuff and school and all that got canceled, and it was easy to kind of focus, it seemed. The reality is the world's going to open back up at some point, and all the distractions that were there before are there now. And I can't help but think in this particular passage when it talks about the pure in heart and the merciful, how easy it is to get caught up in what's happening around us and forget the motivation of our heart to follow the Lord, to go after Him, and then to help those in need. And so my prayer is that I will be focused on that continually. I kept thinking this week when I was reading this passage about the pure in heart and their focus on God. I kept thinking about Peter walking on the water and how awesome of a moment that was going to be or what it was when he walked. He got out there and started to walk. And I thought about the number of times in my life that just like Peter in that moment, he saw the wind. You remember that part, right? Peter saw the wind. The wind was always there. He just saw it. He recognized it. You know what happened, right? Immediately upon seeing the wind, what happens? He falls, Jesus reaches down and picks him up. But I prayed this week, and my prayer is that I would become someone that is singularly focused on following God and extending the mercy of God to the people around me that need it. And that I would not see the wind of distractions that are around me, trying to take my mind's focus off of Him. Because blessed are those that are pure in heart in their devotion to God. Blessed are those that are showing mercy. And that's my prayer for you. As we finish today, we finish with a time of commitment. Listen, we don't come and hear the word of the Lord. We don't look at what the word of the Lord says and walk away changed. If we don't do that, then we have missed an opportunity. James says it's like the man that looks in the mirror and sees himself all messed up and walks away without doing anything about it. We are called by the Lord to examine our own hearts and to bring them before him. So my question to you today is what is God calling you to do? To focus your attention more squarely on the Lord and then also to be merciful. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to respond. We won't do that we normally do with a walk-down invitation, but if you're online, you can respond by the comments or um, emailing us, letting us know fbcgoodnessville.com slash connect here in person you can email me too you can get on that website and do that or in front of you is that card that same card that we talked about earlier you can take that and fill it out and leave it in the place there you are just leave it in the seat we'll come by and get it let me know what God's doing in your life prayer request you have things that God is showing you let's pray together